Welcome back to Trial Trends, a monthly podcast brought to you by 4G Clinical, where we tackle big ideas, challenge the status quo, and bring new perspectives to the rapidly changing world of clinical trials. Get ready to disrupt the old ways of thinking and discover the newest trial trends. Welcome to another episode of the Trial Trends podcast. I'm your host, Libby Rickenbacker, Director of Strategy here at 4G Clinical. Many clinical trials do not result in a cure. But as treatments are getting better, patients oftentimes find themselves in search of the next best treatment when their conditions progress. This podcast is dedicated to one such patient, Linnea Olson, who recently passed away from stage four lung cancer after participating in several clinical trials and Brad Powers Cancer Hacker Lab. We interviewed Brad as he discussed Linnea's case, as well as others, to provide new hope for patients that are running out of treatment options. When you first set out to help Bryce Olson find a better solution than the standard of care he was offered, what were your initial hopes? Well, didn't really know what was going to happen, but thought if you brought a crowd together that they would come up with novel solutions. If if the standard medical system wasn't coming up with good options, that maybe opening it up would. And the notion that you can get a diverse set of people uh, including bioinformaticians, was something that I'd heard about. A friend had pointed me to uh, a hackathon that had been run for a patient named Ono Faber. So I knew in the back of my mind that there was something out there and so that we could learn from people who had done this before. One thing that I wanted to get into today was the concept of the patient's voice and patient advocacy in that we don't typically hear the patient's voice or about their experience in the clinical trials. There's a lot of buzz around the concept of patient centricity. However, when we dig into this further, the process and innovation improvements usually benefit the drug being tested rather than the patient's individual prognosis. So from your perspective, do you see improvements in the space which are empowering patients and their physicians in their treatment and care decisions? Or do you see a lot of the same types of processes taking place that may not allow for that advocacy and patient empowerment? So I'm a process innovation consultant by background. I've look at things through the lens of what's an end-to-end process, who's the beneficiary, and what are the outcomes you're striving for and and the steps that you've got. So I can critique, uh, so (laughs) I can, I will critique (laughs) uh, (laughs) the drug discovery process. It's it's heresy to, to do so, but the randomized clinical trial is the standard by which we make innovation happen in medicine. And that process as everyone knows, is slow and very expensive. It's, it's usually good evidence, but it's slow and very expensive. And from a patient's point of view, something that takes five to 10 years and a billion dollars, it's great and it's working and there's enough money thrown at it that as a patient, things are raining down on you. But if I take the patient perspective, the issue patients face is not that there aren't enough therapies, that there are too many therapies that there are so many choices. If I have breast cancer or prostate cancer, do I get hormone therapy? Do I get surgery? Do I get chemotherapy? Do I get immunotherapy? Like, and, and in what order? And like, how, you know, how does that all fit together? It's, it's very complex. And so that's the aspect that I'm focusing on. When you say the process is bad of randomized clinical trials, what you get is like, that's heresy. That's like religious, like you've just stepped on a sacred cow. You cannot do that. And so, and it's such pushback. And I don't have a background in 
pharmaceuticals or I don't have an MD or a PhD, you know, so I can't, I can't go there. I can't, I can't fight that battle, but I can fight the battle of making things better for patients when they have to make these decisions. That leads into another question I was going to ask you. How, at Cancer Hacker, have you been able to help these patients get past these stopping points in the road to care? Can you give us some examples of that? Yeah. Yeah, we, we should probably make a talk about a case and one that we share, which is uh, Linnea Olson. So Linnea is a well-known person with a social media presence. She's got a blog. She's well-known to a lot of people. She's a patient advocate. And she's been through five, I think, phase one clinical trials of different drugs impacting her ALK positive. So she's ALK inhibitors, which is a particular genetic biomarker for for people with uh, non-small cell lung cancer. And each one of these drugs has the tendency, as we know, to like work for a while until it doesn't. And so she, each one has worked for a while and she's gotten a lot of positive effects from the different drugs she's been on. And she's gotten expert guidance from her oncologist. But at some point they don't work and then you need another drug. And you hope you just stay one step ahead by getting new drugs. And she was on something called a SHIP2 inhibitor was her last. We, we actually were in the hackathon with her when she was deciding on that. And then that didn't work. And her lung, had, she had pleural effusions, which meant she got liquid on her lungs, so it wasn't working. So she very quickly needed her next best treatment. And thanks to the work of the ALK positive community with whom she works, they had identified a drug that her oncologist also liked, and, but it was from Turning Point, And it was not even just in clinical trials. It was just barely in clinical trials in Australia and somewhere else but not yet. It was going to be available in the fall in the U.S., but they were able to get compassionate use. They were able to get a manufacturer turning point to give her access. One of the qualifiers is you can't have had multiple clinical trials before, so she would not have qualified for the clinical trial in any case, but she was able to get access to the drug and through lobbying by her friends at ALK Positive and and others, her oncologist did a, a lot of work to get it to her as fast as possible. And she started on that drug exactly a week ago today. So it was Thursday a week ago. A wonderful case to highlight. And yes, we actually know Linnea in that we have interviewed her here at 4G and we got to witness her hackathon. And we were really struck by a couple of things. One, the incredible professionalism by you and the team. In general, it was just wonderful to see how people came together and how they came together really knowledgeable about everything, first and foremost, about Linnea and her entire case, right? Then how fast everything seems to proceed. Just It was a very speedy process and you kept everyone in line, as you described earlier. You really knew where everybody needed to participate and you were you orchestrated that perfectly. And then perhaps the most impressive part was the dedication of the team to her case in that holistic way, in that she wasn't just a number. She was the entire topic, not just the tumor, but her as a person. And that was just incredible to watch. So I guess my question to you was, is what I just described accurate? And was her hackathon as straightforward as I described? Could you extrapolate the same description to the other hackathons you have participated in and ran? Yeah. So I'm very patient focused. So I'm always probing the patient for what they want, what do they, what do you need right now? And how can the hackathon, how can this crowd that we've assembled help you get what you need and what's done? What's success? 
is another thing I'm always pro- probing on. What's the outcome that we're striving towards so we, we can declare victory and move on at some point? And with Linnea, we went and she got to the ship too. And that was like the, could have been the end of the story had she responded well and was, you know, in, in, in uh, remission, let's say, or, or, you know, like at least stable. But then it didn't. So then we had to pull together a virtual review board on a very short notice and have a conversation about what was going to be best for her. And as again, I said, it confirmed what her oncologists were leaning towards in any case. But I think it gave Linnea more confidence. But in her case, I've been asking lately, you know, like, well, are we done? You know, have we achieved what we wanted to for you? You've got this now, let's say you're on this fourth generation ALK drug. It seems to be working. Are we done? And she says, no, you know, I, I, I love this community and the people that have come together for me. Stay tuned. Let's see how I respond. And so what I realized from that is that part of what this hackathon is, because of its like weekly check-in, it's almost like a reality TV show. And I don't want to trivialize that aspect, but people love Linnea. People care about these patients and this community that comes together wants to continue to learn and continue to hear how it's going with that patient. That's absolutely incredible, the the support and advocacy you provide them. I mean, really in probably some of the scariest moments that they, they're living through. The result of Linnea's hackathon, the compassionate use for the, the trial drug, I wanted to get into and maybe ask you to elaborate on what compassionate use is and how it really works in the real world. Because we have all heard stories, but it's difficult to define. And maybe you can give us a bigger perspective of when compassionate use is granted. Yeah, I think uh, Kim Marie Kulik has been involved. I wanted to give a shout out to her. And she and others, like a, there's also Grace Cordovano, have been guiding this in this area. And they know the ins and outs of the FDA access. There was a point at which Linnea current treatment with a SHIP2 inhibitor was not working. And she needed to transition to something as soon as possible. And initially, the feedback was, well, that'll be like four to six weeks. And four to six weeks, the hackathon community said, that's a lifetime. She doesn't need it in four to six weeks. She needs it in four to six days. And what can we do to accelerate that? So there was a discussion and Jeff Waldron said, well, you know, the FDA has this emergency hotline you can call and within 24 hours, they will approve in certain circumstances. And, and, and apparently from the discussion, the group, we have very knowledgeable people. There's someone who's worked with SWOG and, and worked with clinical trials from the patient standpoint at Peggy Zuckerman. She says, uh, you know, they approve 98% of these. So you can get this done. And so Linnea's oncologist might've done this anyway, but went to bat and, and basically push on things and again, I mentioned the ALK positive folks did such that they shrank the four to six weeks and it eventually ended up being like six to 10 days. And that was through Herculean efforts by a whole community of people working through the bureaucracy. Part of this is just working through the bureaucracy. It was also the case that Turning Point, kudos to them because they weren't even in clinical trials. They don't even have their manufacturing process set up. It's not like they have a lot of this drug on the shelf and yet they were pressured or chose to get the drug to Linnea in a much shorter order than they would normally if they followed their normal protocols. What you just described is just incredible in 
terms of the resources that you've been able to put together within Cancer Hacker and the community. It's just absolutely incredible to hear this and really congratulations. She, of course, is very lucky, but she also is a patient advocate for herself and others in the community. So I think that many would be thanking Linnea herself for participating in the way that she has. It's just absolutely incredible, the the whole thing. Yeah, at the center of it really is Linnea, and I have to give credit. I mean, I think the in this instance, the hackathon was giving confidence and support, but the real people doing the work were the people at the ALK Positive community, and of course, uh, Linnea's oncologists. They were the ones really, that have to have to do the hard work of you know being a squeaky wheel, perhaps, and and really pushing things that that they normally wouldn't follow. So I want to give credit where credit is due. We were, again, in this instance, being supportive and giving Linnea confidence, but the hard work was being done by others. One thing that I would love to ask is in regards to the amount of information and data which has come out of these hackathons, I guess I'm both wondering and hoping that these cases can help others in their expectations, the process, and perhaps for their futures. Yeah. So we have taken on consciously patients with difficult decisions. So they've exhausted the standard of care. They may have even exhausted clinical trials, as I mentioned, the case of Bryce. So part of it is finding things that are maybe in clinical trials or things that are in research labs. So it's really the options you have from the standard sources are not enough. And so you're you're looking and you and you don't want to go into things that are, there's some hucksterism and there's some charlatanism in people that are desperate for solutions. And there are some outsider responses that some people get. So, but if you want us to be very active and you want to be within the areas of science, you reach into research labs and then there might be things that have been tested in mouse models that they haven't really been, have any or very little clinical experience. So that's that's the difficult territory that we're heading into. And then the question is, how can you get confidence in that? And part of that then comes from, first of all, having a lot more information on the diagnostic side to have run as many tests as possible. And then the other is by having a crowd. I had a discussion with a clinician who is very generous in sort of sharing us, sharing with us the clinician point of view, which it has to be very sober, has to be very like you have life and death decisions in your hands this is what these doctors are deciding. And how can you work with that mindset when you're dealing with things that are kind of crazy? And there is a setup in the standard medical system called a second opinion. And many, many or most people don't get a second opinion. And what we're trying to do is effectively to get multiple second opinions. So get a half a dozen experts and I think that would give you, if, I, if it were me, that would give me more confidence. If I had six experts give me second opinions and they all came up with a consensus view, that would be give me a lot more confidence. Even though I was getting out on a skinny branch with not a lot of experience, it would be my best shot. And that's what we're trying to do again. We're trying to come up with what's the best shot you have at that next shot, recognizing there might be a shot after that. But that's really what we're trying to do and give something to people that's better than what the prospects would be if they followed the standard. A lot of what we also hear in terms of treatment and getting a second opinion, that's expensive, right? So if you go to the the traditional route that you go to the one physician, then another, 
maybe out of network and you bring in the whole insurance concept. Can you describe how that works within Cancer Hacker? How do people come together and maybe get around those things? Well, first of all, I could make a plug for my friends at Cancer Commons. So in my doing research on getting second opinions, which I think is something that I would recommend to everyone with a cancer diagnosis, particularly since 90% of people get treated at a community oncology practice, not a, an academic research center, that they should go to an academic research center and speak to a specialist in their cancer. I would advise that for everyone to get a second opinion, again, particularly if you're not starting at one of those academic research centers as I was. And I did research on that, and there are, are companies out there who do that virtually and including Cancer Commons, and Cancer Commons does it for free. How are you looking to scale Cancer Hacker? And some of the same questions you just answered, maybe you could apply that to, to how you're looking at your own future. Well, the nice thing we have with each of the hackathons we've run is that we've solved for one patient something that any patient who would follow in the trail that they've blazed would want. And the three things that I've found that each of the hackathons have and what patients need to know are first, what are the testing options you need and how do you prioritize them? And we can get into the issue that's come up in almost all the hackathons, which is the scarcity of tumor tissue, which you would, which is often the feedstock for many of those diagnostic tests and gets very scarce very fast. And the second area is you want to know who are the experts. So you want to know in, in your particular disease, who would I want to have giving me advice? And so you want the dream team of experts in that very specific area. So staying with Linnea Olson, that's the ALK positive, non-small cell lung cancer experts. Who are those people and can you engage them in giving you advice? And then the third obvious one is the treatment options and then prioritizing them. So those three things are what we've pioneered for each of the patients. And then any patient who would look like them who comes along, those are already like in place. So you know what the tests are, you know who the experts are, and you know what the treatment options are. Now we're going to particularize it to your specific situation, but you at least have those in place. So the hope is that we could do that on a very efficient basis, because the criticism of the hackathon is that is it's very expensive to convene a large community to work on this for one patient. You can't do that for everybody. But if we could have patients who follow that are in a cohort that look like the original patient, we could do that very efficiently. In fact, it could almost be automated. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Interesting. Well, we certainly hope that uh, you're able to scale because I'm sure you have a huge demand that can you describe the demand? How are people reaching out to you? Do you get emails? I'm sure that you you have a lot of traction there. Well, you would think so. It's a free service. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's a free service that when you're at the end of that road we, road we were describing before is literally salvation, right? So right. Every, I would imagine you have a lot of people knocking on your door. Well, it is. I, I don't know if salvation would give us a little, again, too, a little too much credit, but it is hope. It's another option. When the medical system has told you there's nothing more we can do for you, there is this, this hope. So it's something you can grasp at if you are so inclined. Let's flip this a little bit. What are the things that haven't worked so well? And where do you see some opportunities to maybe make some improvements? Because we're pushing the envelope, we bump into roadblocks all the time. <laughs> um, I can think of three just sort of off the top of my head. One is clinician engagement. 
One is, I, I think I mentioned the issue of tissue, and the other is consents, proxies, and backups. So clinician engagement, each patient comes with an existing medical team, and those medical teams have been more or less interested in participating with the hackathon. They range from, this is awesome, I'm going to learn something because this crowd is going to come together, to this is naive and superficial. And it might be good for brainstorming, but this is no way to make a decision. So clinician engagement, in particular, the clinicians that we want to pull into the review board. So not only the the treating oncologist for the patient, but rather the group that we try to pull together to review the treatment options and prioritize them. So engaging them, getting them to play, it's not what they're used to. It's It's not like a standard thing. And they have competing demands on their time, obviously. They might have liability concerns. There are a lot of concerns that go there. So figuring that out, navigating that has been one issue that we're having to work through and try and sort out. The issue of tissue I've mentioned, it's the feedstock for all the tests. So we want to run a lot of tests. There are a lot of diagnostic companies that are coming to the table saying, we're quite happy to run this test or develop this model. Name your omics, RNA, seq you know, you have it. But then you say, okay, well, what do you need to feed that? And they say, well, we need fresh tumor tissue. Well, you know, there's a block sitting somewhere in some, you know, some of the recesses of where the person was originally treated. That's now been gone after a few times, not sure how much is left there. And it's old. It's not really reflecting the current state of the cancer in that patient, what have you. The patient might be, in one case, no evidence of disease now. So there is no tumor to biopsy now, or they've had some lesions, but every time they have one, they irradiate it. So there's not, you know, there's not tissue to go around. So that's been an issue. That's been a problem for us. And so it's, that's a bottleneck. More tests we'd like to be able to run than there is tissue to feed into those tests. And then the third issue uh, came up with Linnea is that patients have a lot of rights. They can offer their data to anyone they want. They can make medical decisions. The hackathon needs them to basically give updates on what, how they're feeling. And for a while, Linnea was incapacitated. You know, she just, she, when I mentioned that she kind of crashed on that ship too, she was bedridden, you know, and not feeling great. And so she wasn't available. And so the whole thing ground to a halt. And what we realized is you need a backup. You need a caregiver. You know, in the, in the other hackathon we're running, Casey Altman has been getting chemo, but her mother, Delcy, is able to stand in for her when Casey's not available. So you need that kind of backup. You need that kind of proxy and we didn't have those in place for Linnea. And it, it really hindered our ability to help her. We wanted to take a load off of her, but we couldn't because we didn't have that kind of stuff. So we learned that we need to set those things up in advance. So that was another big learning from what we've bumped into in the process so far. Well, this has been absolutely inspiring. I do have one last question for you. What can we, the public, do to help these types of movements, initiatives keep progressing? So Cancer Hacker Lab website, cancerhackerlab.com, is um, where we've got pretty extensive write-ups on these three hackathons. So uh, you can see what's going on there. There, The two areas, again, in my delusions of grandeur are more patients who fit the profile of these kind of super patients that could kick off something in an area. And then, you know, cancer patients with very complex decisions, not standard, like like I was just diagnosed, but rather I've been through a number of, of rounds, or, or if you've got a very rare cancer or a cancer, there are a number of cancers like pancreatic cancer or brain cancers where by the time you get a diagnosis, you are desperate. 
and then um, scaling. So anybody who would like to pitch in to try to take any one of these and make them available to a larger community. Well, thank you so much for your time today. This really, truly has been inspiring. Empowering and educating patients and their advocates is so incredibly important throughout their participation and navigation of clinical trial options. To have resources such as Cancer Hacker Lab in their corner surely helps attenuate the relentless feeling of helplessness. Thank you again for being here today and providing your perspective. Thank you, Libby. My pleasure. Thank you for joining this episode of Trial Trends. If you enjoyed this discussion, then make sure to subscribe to the podcast through your favorite podcast platform or on 4gclinical.com. Until next time, we're your hosts, Kathleen Greeno and Libby Rickenbacker. 